1933, Francine Christophe was born in France to a Jewish family. Uh, 1933 was incidentally also the same year that Hitler came into power in Germany. When Francine was eight years old, she was taken from her home in France and brought to the Bergen-Belsen uh, camp, concentration camp, where she spent her most formative young years. Uh, because she was the child of a prisoner of war, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but if you were a child and you were brought to a concentration camp, you were allowed to bring one item with you. And so before they were taken from France, her mother said to her, Francine, what is it that you would like to bring? And she thought about it, and she thought about it, and there was a piece of chocolate. And her mother said, well, that's good, because we don't know what this is going to be like, and I'm going to save this for you. For a moment when you are really low at the end of your rope, I'm going to save this piece of chocolate for you. So she grew up in this concentration camp. And one day, her mother came to her and said, Francine, we need to talk about your chocolate because there was a pregnant woman who had been also brought to the concentration camp, and she was about to go into labor, and the mother was going to be the one helping to deliver this baby in the worst of places, in the darkest of places, in a most terrifying moment. And she said to her daughter, who was 12 years old at the time, we need your chocolate, because this woman needs all the strength she can possibly have to bring this baby into the world, and we don't have any food anywhere else. So, Christine, or Francine, if, you, if you're willing to give up your chocolate, I think this would mean a lot to the mother. And so Francine said, yes, Mama, you can take the chocolate. So she gave the chocolate to the mother, and she gave birth to the child, little baby boy. And this child never cried, never screamed. For about a year, that child was wrapped up in rags and passed from person to person, them all taking this communal responsibility for this child. And then the day came when they were liberated, when the Allied forces made their way to Bergen-Belsen, and they unwrapped the baby's rags, and he screamed. And Francine said that's the day he was really born. So she, as a young person, survived the camp, and she went back to France, and she became a, a psychologist. And as she got older and older, her own children came to her, and she said, uh, Mom, don't you think it would have been so much better for you and the other people who survived if you had therapists and people you could talk to about what you experienced? And she said, well, of course, but we didn't have those things. But it gave her the idea for a couple years ago. She held a conference, thinking about what would have happened had there been people there to help those who went through the most horrific experience in the world. And so she got up at the beginning of this conference, and she said, we have survivors of the Holocaust, we have psychoanalysts, we have therapists, psychologists, we have this big, big group together, and we're going to think about what, what could have happened after some of us were liberated. And so they went through the whole conference, and then at some point, um, a man came up to speak. And he said, I'm a, I'm a psychologist, I live in Marseille, and I'm wondering, is, is Francine Christophe still here? And she raised her hand, and he said, I have something for you. And he put his hand in his pocket, and he pulled out a piece of chocolate. And he said, I am the baby. One little thing that becomes everything. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Mark, in the seventh chapter, verses 24 through 37. Hear now God's word. From there he sent out and went to the region of Tyre, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice, 
But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying in the bed, and the demon was gone. Then he returned to the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he has done everything well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus had a way of attracting desperate people, and he had a way of loving desperate people. Jesus miraculously reaches out beyond all the perfectly good reasons for not doing so and brings about a new reality that no one thought possible. And what happens in the story from Scripture today really is a miracle. But here's the kicker. The so-called Syrophoenician woman and most of the other recipients of grace, for that matter, they don't receive the miracle because of what they believe, at least not really. A miracle, by definition, is an unwarranted, an undeserved gift of God. God in Christ has this knack of making the outsiders into insiders, of reaching beyond and outside the boundaries of propriety, of meeting people where they are, not where they ought to be. God meets us in our mistakes, not our triumphs. God meets us in our sins, not in our successes. Which is to say, this woman has faith. Her line about even the dogs under the table shows that she has caught a, a glimpse of the way grace works in the world. There's always more than enough Jesus to go around. Especially to those who don't deserve him. Because none of us deserve him. She understands in some way, shape, or form that this is the way God has determined to be God through mercy. God has open arms with an outstretched table that never, ever stops and desires for all to have a taste of grace in order that the world might be transformed, even transfigured. Somehow this woman knows that mercy might begin with Israel, but she also knows that God's mercy doesn't end with Israel. In other words, God likes crowded tables. There's no sinner so bad that they are beyond the grace of God. Even the worst stinker in the world is someone for whom Christ died. The woman has faith, even in her desperation, that something can change. Which I think kind of begs the question for us, what is faith? 
What is faith? For some of us, we might imagine that first and foremost, it's, it's to say yes to a proposition of theological concerns, something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Some of us might believe that faith is just about being baptized or accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, whatever that might mean. And yet we don't hear Jesus say anything about any of that with the woman, nor does he put any prerequisites before he heals the deaf man with an impediment in his speech. I mean, think about the thief next to Jesus on the cross. I love this little vignette in the Gospels. This thief who is about to die, the only thing he says to Jesus is, remember me. And Jesus says, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Friends, when God makes a new heaven and a new earth, when the resurrection of the dead happens for all of us, I can't wait to talk to that thief. He is number one on my priority list to talk to in heaven, because I want to find out how that all shook out for him, you know? Because can't you just imagine him walking through the pearly gates and you see the angels with their arms crossed? Well, he didn't go to church every Sunday. He never got baptized. He didn't put 10% of his income into the offering plate. Hey, you thief, how did you get in? You know what the thief says? The guy on the cross said I could come. Faith isn't about what we do. Faith is about what's done to us. In the end, faith is really nothing more than just trusting that Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do. Why does she trust him, this Syrophoenician woman? We don't know. I mean, maybe she heard about him through the grapevine. Maybe she ran into someone who had a taste of the loaves and the fishes. Scripture doesn't tell us why she trusts. But she was desperate. The words from the word continue to spread even today. We have them in our scriptures. Sometimes they show up in sermons. More often than not, they're in songs. But they're always in the sacrament. The word has a way of finding strange paths particularly to those who don't go to church on a Sunday morning, to those who don't read their Bibles. There are always, always small crumbs falling from the rich table where God gives the bread of life. And that's how faith works. It kind of just shows up, out of nowhere, unannounced. Faith has nothing to demand. It earns nothing. It deserves nothing. Faith is just saying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, remember me. Because faith, real confounding faith, knows that if Jesus helps, it is only by grace. Grace is only given to those who stand under judgment, which is all of us. A few years ago, I came across a story that a woman goes around the country telling, and it's haunted me ever since. In the early 90s, she found herself laying on the floor of her living room in the fetal position. She had grown up with every privilege in the world. Her parents had uh, paid for her to go to college. She had a good job, but she just kept meeting the wrong people and going to the wrong kind of places, and her life just slowly tumbled and, and fell apart. And so she found herself lying on the floor on her carpet in the middle of the night, waiting for her husband to come home with a fix, but she knew that if he did come home, he wasn't going to share any of it with her, and she was afraid. She was afraid of what would happen if she didn't get the thing she wanted in her arm, she was afraid of what would happen if she did get it. She was afraid about her baby that was crying in the next room over, afraid that social services would come and take her child, afraid that maybe social services should have come and taken her child. She's laying on the floor in the middle of the night, and she has this piece of paper in her hands. She's shaking, and she's unfolding and folding this piece of paper, and on the paper is a phone number. 
A few years before, her mother had sent her a letter in the mail saying, I want you to get help. And it was the number for a Christian counselor. And so this woman, she just keeps folding and unfolding and folding and unfolding. And before she realizes it, she takes out her phone and she calls the number at two o'clock in the morning. And someone answers, hello? She said, I, I know you don't know me. My mom gave me this number. I really need help. Do you think you could just listen to me? The man on the other end clearly was waking up in the middle of the night, and she could hear him shuffling around, and he said, yeah, um, sure, tell me, tell me what's going on. And so she did. She says that she admitted truths about herself that she hadn't even admitted to herself. She said, I'm a drug addict. I'm afraid my husband, he keeps hitting me. I'm afraid about my child, that maybe I shouldn't have him anymore. I'm afraid because I don't know what to do next. And the man kept listening, and he didn't offer advice. He didn't judge her. He said, well, tell me more. How did this happen? Tell me more. Tell me more. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. Tell me. And they talked all night long. They kept going back and forth and back and forth until she realized the sun was coming up through her window. And she said to the man, you know, I just, you're really good at this. I'm, I, I got to admit, I'm kind of impressed, but I got to tell you, I'm a little concerned you're a Christian counselor, but you haven't given me any scriptures I should read. You haven't offered to pray for me. Shouldn't you be doing that? And he kind of brushed it aside, and he said, well, no, keep telling me how you're feeling. And she said, no, you don't understand. Like, this is like a miracle. I can't believe how much different I feel. How long have you been a Christian counselor? And he said, just before you hang up, you know that number you said your mom gave you for a Christian counselor? Wrong number. She said, you mean I've been talking to a total stranger all night? And he said, yes. So they talked for a little bit longer until the conversation came to an end. And when she tells the story, she said, you know, my life didn't change in an instant, but I woke up that morning and I was different. I started to make changes to my life. I started asking for help. I got out of that relationship. My son and I moved to a different city. We started over. It wasn't in one moment, but it was the change I needed. And she said, it's because... For the first time in my life, I realized there was love in the universe. Unconditional love. And some of it was meant even for me. And so she goes around and she tells the story and she always ends it the same way. She says, this is the only thing I know. That in the deepest and darkest moments of despair and anxiety, it only takes a pinhole of light and all of grace can come through. Faith, faith teaches us a lot about the Lord, but it also teaches us a lot about ourselves. There's really not a way for us to encounter God without coming to grips with the condition of our condition, no matter how good we might seem on the surface. We should want to love our enemies and never be angry with our neighbors. We should want to do that, but we don't. We can't. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We are not as we ought to be. We are miserable offenders. We're not worthy to come to the table, but that is the heart of grace. We don't deserve what God gives us. We're like a woman who makes a phone call in the middle of the night, and God listens. We're like a woman in a concentration camp who needs nothing more than a piece of chocolate, and we receive it. We are who we are because of what God has done for us. It's like my favorite all-time hymn, 
God takes away our sins, not in part but the whole, nails them to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God's kingdom is a new kingdom in which forgiveness never runs dry, where we are always, always, always invited to the feast where even the tiniest of crumbs convey the richness of grace. One of the strangest things about being a Christian is coming to grips with the fact that we are not who we are had we not been desperate. And that's faith. It's expecting the unexpected. It's calling out for help from the one who shouldn't help us and yet does anyway, no matter what. I don't know about you. Some of you look pretty handsome, pretty beautiful on this Sunday morning. You look like you've got your lives together, got those nice stock portfolios, happy about what tomorrow will bring. But the truth is, as the pastor of a church for only two months, I know the truth about a lot of you, because more than a few of you have already come to my office and shared some things with me that I don't think you've shared with anyone else. And I know that for as much as we look like we have it all together on the surface, that's not actually true. That all of us in some way are desperate. Desperate for a little bit of light and a world of darkness. And it's in desperation that we might find Jesus. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.